Vincent, worship team, for leading some songs of praise, and it's kind of neat. Uh, I get to I get to sing these songs twice, <laughs> and uh, and you kind of just when you sing the songs, you kind of just notice different truths in different songs. And, and this time, as I was singing through that set, I just couldn't help but notice the, the first say kind of uh, stanza of uh, "Speak, O Lord," as we come to receive from you the food of your holy word. And I've just been thinking about yes, that's that's what we are doing. We each time we come to God's word, we are feeding on God's word. It is food from uh, the lips of our Lord. Uh, Jesus himself says, my food is to do the will of, of my heavenly Father. And, and really, God gives us his, food, his word, which reveals his will for us. And as we hear it, as we receive it, it is food. As we live it out, it is food. It is nourishment for our souls. And I hope you've been blessed. You've been here with those of you that's with us. Uh, uh, we've been going through Isaiah, and it's been a, a three-and-a-half-year banquet, I think, of God's food. And so I hope it's been encouraging to you. We're nearing the end. And if you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to the second to last chapter of Isaiah 60, of Isaiah, Isaiah 65. And we're going to look at verses 17 through 25 this morning. Isaiah 65, 17 through 25. And again, I want to welcome all you who are first-time visitors, uh, uh, students. Uh, welcome all of you who are uh, just visiting out of town or you're local and you're looking for a church. And I'm sure there's some of you who are just returning guests and visitors. And we're glad to have you back as well. We hope that uh, as a church of Jesus Christ, our desire is to make disciples of Jesus Christ to the glory of God. That's what we want to do. And we, if you're part of this church, we hope that you will come and join us and, and be, learn what it means to be a disciple of Christ and that you will become a disciple maker yourself and all to the glory of God. So uh, this morning we're going to look at uh, Isaiah 65, verses 17 to 25 this today. And I'm, I'm decided I'm going to read the text. Even though it's a short text, I'll read the text within the sermon and, uh, and then we'll get into the text. Uh, <clears throat> just by way of just personal kind of sharing, we're nearing the end of Isaiah. And it's, this is, these last two chapters are kind of like at the end of the meal is what? Is uh, dessert, right? And when you have dessert, you don't just like take this that big ice cream, just um, you don't do that. Right? You, kinda, you want to just take a like, savor those, that dessert, that sweetness, the sweetness that, uh, at the end of our meal. And I feel like that's what I want to do, even as we're at 65 and we've broken down into two, ver- two sections. When you look at 66, I might break it down into two or three other uh, sermons as well. And hopefully as, soon as we close our study through this book, we're going to savor some of these really sweet truths that we've seen th- all throughout Isaiah, but particularly emphasized again for us here in uh, these last two chapters. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Father in heaven, we thank you for your truths, your word that is our holy food. It is, uh, is food for us to nourish us, to cause us to grow in Christ-likeness. It is uh, uh, milk, it is meat, it is uh, for the strengthening of our lives. Lord, we pray that the food that we eat would not just make us fat, but that we would use it and use it to exercise and to live out your word in, in our daily life, in, our, in this world that you have placed us in. We thank you that we come to your word today, especially as it reveals to us of your plans for your world in the future. And we get to, as we look into the glimpse of your future plans, thank you, Lord, for revealing to us how we may be a part of it as well through faith in Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that your word would encourage your people, that it would build up the saints here, uh, that especially, Lord, minister to those who are going through sorrows, going through pains, going through loss and uh, going through the aches of living in a sin-cursed world. We pray that the glimpse of your future plans for not only your people, but for this world would be a source of comfort and encouragement. Lord, we especially pray that if there's anyone here today 
who does not yet know Jesus as Savior and Lord is still seeking that you would give them a glimpse of the future and draw them to a saving knowledge of you through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask these things uh, for your glory, for the further building up of your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. In Revelation chapter 19 to 22, God reveals uh, something. We're going to start with Revelation. Uh, reveals to the Apostle John a vision of the events that are going to surround the return of Jesus. And I turn there because the, the passage today begins with a description of, of, and introduces with the new heaven and new earth. And when you think of new heaven and new earth, you cannot help but go back to Revelation or go forward to Revelation. Especially if those of you that were in our adult one Sunday school class uh, last quarter, we studied systematic theology, we studied eschatology, and we covered the, the eternal, what's called the eternal state, or that state which is also known as the new heavens and new earth. Thank you for so graciously sitting there and thinking uh, that I had my PowerPoint, my keynote up. That <laughs> wasn't it. It's a beautiful picture, though. It's a beautiful picture. Let's see if this will work. Okay, there you go. If not, I'll just show you pictures of my kids. All right. But anyways, in, in, so when we think of the new heavens and new earth are also known as the eternal state, basically what we're going to spend eternity in, God speaks of this in Revelation 19 to 22. And in Revelation 19 to 22, God reveals to the Apostle John a vision of the events surrounding the return of Jesus. Beginning in chapter 19, we will see there, or we would, we've learned there that that's where Christ will return. And beginning with Christ's return, then a whole series of events are going to take place if we take a, a futuristic view of Revelation. Uh, we'll see that with Christ's return comes the battle of Armageddon when the nations gather to, uh, that, are in, uh, that are against God. They're with uh, the Antichrist. They will come in battle against Christ, and Christ will defeat them at the battle of Armageddon. That is followed by, in chapter 20, with how Satan, the one who leads all the nations astray, who deceives them, is going to be bound. Right now, he's the god of this world. He's ruling. He's deceiving people, blinding people. But one day, he'll be bound for a thousand years. And in that thousand years will be appeared known as the Millennium Kingdom, where Christ, after he returning, will rule in Jerusalem on this world for a thousand years. A thousand years where he will fulfill all the promises that he made to Abraham, to Isaac, <clears throat> to Jacob, to David, and, all <clears throat> and to the people of God on earth. In that Millennium Kingdom, after those thousand years, Christ will reign. He will reign in righteousness and justice and peace. Satan will be released at the end. He'll be lead another rebellion, but then Jesus will finally defeat him, be thrown into the lake of fire for eternity. Following that, there's something going to be called uh, the great <clears throat> white throne judgment, where <clears throat> all, the, all the wicked are going to be raised. Called, this is called the second resurrection, where they will be then be raised to judgment. They're going to be judged, and they're going to be evaluated. They're going to evaluate to see if their names are written in the book of life, and they are not. And they'll be, and then they, they'll be evaluated by the works that they've done, and they've sinned, and they will be cast into the lake of fire, along with Satan, Antichrist, the false beast, etc. <clears throat> and after that great white throne judgment, then chapters 21 and 22 describe what we are going to look at today, the new heavens and new earth, uh, also known as the eternal state. In here, when, where uh, Christ will reign in, for eternity and as, as, a, as king, and we've 
And we read about it in Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. And I kind of, re- actually, I won't read it again because I read it as our call to worship in the very beginning. But you'll see there how John talks about a new heaven and new earth. and talks about how the old heaven and earth, the first heaven and earth are passed away. And it's a new heaven and earth. Along with that will be a new capital. The new capital, Jerusalem, comes down from above, from heaven. And that will be where Jesus will reign. Along with many things that will take place in this kingdom. Uh, you can kind of read about it in verse 1 to 5. But the... Uh, in verse 5, particularly, Jesus emphasizes that what, why he creates a new heaven and earth is because he is making all things new. See, this world that we live in is not the world that we're going to be living in in the future. Uh, we get a glimpse of God's future plans today. We see that all that this world is, as wonderful as it is, will one day pass away according to the word of God. And in its place, God is going to create a new heaven and new earth. And while Revelation 21 to 22 is the most explicit description of, in the Bible of the eternal state, it is not the only reference. It is mentioned the total of four times, twice in the New Testament and twice in the Old Testament. The other New Testament reference is 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 and 13. I want to read it for you because it's, it's a, I want to show you the, the significance that this is a consistent uh, teaching of the Scriptures. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, Peter writes, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Just like Revelation 21 here, we see that the old earth is going to pass away. In fact, it's going to be destroyed. It'll be replaced by a new heavens and new earth. And this will take place when the Lord returns. The day of the Lord will come. That's when he will return. What's interesting, though, that in this in Peter's kind of reference of the, the day of the Lord or when Christ returns as well as the new heavens and new earth, he doesn't mention the events in between. He only mentions the Lord's return and he mentions new heavens and new earth. No mention of Armageddon, no mention of Millennial Kingdom, the great white throne judgment, and uh, where, where Satan will be bound. He only mentions basically the, the two endpoints, even though there will be a series of events that take place in the middle. But Peter's focus in this text is that this world will be destroyed. It will be judged because of his curse, this curse of sin. But it will inevitably lead to a creation of a new heaven and a new earth. This is the promise of God. That the end of this fallen world and the creation of a new world is, is, is his promise. And it is meant to be a consolation or a comfort as well as a motivation or an encouragement for God's people, and as according to Peter, to conduct themselves in holiness and godliness, to repent of sin and walk in, holy, walk in holiness and godliness before the Lord. In fact, Peter makes mention in verse 13 here that the new heavens and new earth is according to God's promise. This is a sure thing. You want to know what's sure? We don't know what's sure. We don't know anything as far as the future of our lives would go, but when God reveals something will happen, you know it will happen. It's a sure thing. If you could place a bet on this in Las Vegas, you should put all your money on it. Okay, no, I'm not saying you should do that. But if it's absolutely sure, is it, still, is it really gambling? Well, anyways, no, that's a, another matter. But anyways, this, we notice in verse 3, it says, according to his promise. 
So the promise is, Peter understands that there was a promise of a new heaven and a new earth. And that tells us that somewhere in the Old Testament is the promise of a new heaven and new earth. This is not the first time. New, the idea of a new heaven and new earth is not a New Testament teaching. It's an Old Testament teaching. And can you guess where in the Old Testament, well, we are going to find the promise of a new heaven and new earth? Isaiah, good answer. Isaiah, right on. That's, that's not bad. I actually heard someone talk today. Isaiah. In fact, the two other times in the Old Testament that's found, it's found in Isaiah. Isaiah 65 and Isaiah 66. Today's passage is the very first mention of God's promise of new heaven and earth. So you want to study about the eternal state, you really have to look here in chapter 65. Now, to give you context, chapter 65 has basically reminded Israel that it is because of their sins, their iniquities, that God has not answered their prayer. And he has not delivered them from their surrounding enemy nations. Uh, but in fact, not only their idolatry, but their father's idolatry has brought about God's wrath upon the nation. That's why they have been defeated by uh, various surrounding nations on various occasions. Why they constantly are under their threat, under their rule. But God promises to one day save Israel. See, not only does Israel need a salvation, they need a new nature as well. But they also learn today, as we look at this five, that they will have a new world. A whole new world to dwell in. A world where Christ will reign and will, they will fulfill every promise that God, or they will walk in, according to every commandment that God has for them, and where God fulfills every promise that he made to them. And that will take place when one day God removes the curse of sin upon mankind. He removes the curse of sin in this world. You know, everything that you and I face, that is a heartache, that is sorrow, that is painful, is basically the result of sin's curse upon our world. Because we live in a world that is under the curse of sin. Everything can be eventually found back. Everything that's wrong with this world, you can eventually point back to the fact that this world is under the curse of sin. And not just the world, but you and I, brothers and sisters, mankind, we are under the curse of sin. We are all born with the sinful nature. And because we interact with one another, we sin against each other. And a lot of what's wrong with this world is because of sin. And there's a sin that, that we commit one another, but there's just the sin that's in our world. It is therefore of great significance that for God's people who live in this world, that we understand God's plan and we look to his plan that this is not the world that he wants, is going to have us live in forever. That we need to look to a future coming world that he is going to create, that he's going to make in Jesus Christ. And so today is in these seven verses, uh, eight verses, nine verses, we're going to see five promises regarding this future world. Isaiah reveals five promises regarding this future world that will comfort those of us who dwell in this fallen world. If you need comfort, you need consolation, you need encouragement, as the Israelites did, you can find comfort that there's going to be a future world that is coming, a future world that God promises. So let's take a look at these promises. They're pretty, uh, we'll look at them hopefully uh, just kind of quickly because there's five of them, so we can't take too much time at each point. But point number one, the first promise that's made is the overall promise. And that's a promise of a new world. A new world. Verse 17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. God says, behold. And I love it. God says, when he, God says, behold, it's, he says, basically he's saying, look at me. Pay attention to me. He's calling them to something that he's about to do. Israel, and a lot of times, uh, Israel and even ourselves, 
a lot of times, who's our focus on generally? Ourselves, right? That's very natural. We, are, we tend to focus on ourselves. And so when circumstances in our life are not doing well, we tend to focus on ourselves. But I love how God comforts his people, and he calls them to behold me. This isn't even the normal word. This is the normal word for behold. But he has, adds a little pre, uh, particle at the end that says, behold me. He says he draws them to look at himself almost. And this is what God himself is doing. He says, look at me because this is what I'm going to do. I create I create. He's going to create something. And when you see this word create, especially if you're an Israelite, you, you understood he, the, uh, you're familiar with the Hebrew words or you understand the Old Testament Bible, you would think immediately of what verse in the Bible when God creates. Say it out loud. You know it. Genesis 1.1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And by the way, that's the same exact word here in the Hebrew. It's a God created, just as God created the heavens and the earth, this, the present world that we see, God promises here, I create, or I will create new heavens and a new earth. By the way, the phrase heavens and earth don't just refer to just the sky. It can refer to the sky. It can refer to the, the atmosphere. It can refer to heaven where God dwells. But the heavens and earth really are just two words that simply describe the whole universe. All heaven and earth and everything in between. This universe or the world that we see, the created world. God is going to create a whole new world, is his promise. Just as he created the heavens and earth out of nothing with his word alone by simply speaking into existence. So we can imagine that this is not going to be a problem. Anybody who gets a difficult, any difficulty with this should just study Genesis 1-1 and say, well, if God can do that, surely he could create a new heavens and earth without destroying all of us. Because you know, where are we going to be when he's creating this new heaven and earth? Well, don't worry about it. He'll figure it out. God created the current heavens and earth. He will create a new heaven and new earth. God will do it. But what, besides the fact that it's new, everybody likes new things, so that's great, right? I have a new house, that'd be nice. New car, be nice. New clothes, are nice. But a new world is even better, right? God's going to make a whole new world. But what makes this, besides being new, all new things get old. So what makes this new world so great? Well, he says so in that half of verse 1. And the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. Uh, what does this mean, the former things will not be remembered? In fact, I chose that as the title for the sermon is it referring to simply the old heaven and earth? Not quite. It's not just referring to just the old creation. Isaiah actually uses this, word, this phrase, former things, a total of six times in the book of Isaiah. Uh, 42, 9, 43, 9, and 43, 18, 46, 9, 43. You don't have to write all that down, but just a couple places. But in every instance where he uses this phrase, former things, it refers to the events of the past. Past events. I'll give you an example. Uh, Isaiah 43, verse 18. Do not call to mind the former things or ponder things of the past. Here we see this clear reference, this, uh, a parallel uh, statement where the former things are equated with the past, the things of the past. And so when, we, when he says here, the former things will not be remembered or come to mind in our world, God is saying that the past things, all the things of the past, things that are behind us, will be forgotten. Remember Isaiah 65, verse 16? You're going to go back there. 
There, God promises to bless. Uh, though he blesses bless Israelites. Uh, they will be able to swear by God, of, the God of truth. Why? Because the former troubles are forgotten. What are the, the things of the past? The troubles in their past are going to be forgotten. The things that are, are, are were their sins, the, their idolatry, the effects of their sin, the, all the difficulties they went through, all those sin, the sins that they committed will be forgotten and forgiven because of the Messiah who dies for them. So here then, the past, with a particular focus on our sinful, the sin, our sin's impact upon our lives, our deeds, and, our, and, and the world, those things will not be remembered. As Christ, and what is more, we already kind of get a taste of this. We're getting a taste of this already. As Christians, you and I are what we call new creation. We see this reference in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Sometimes that's a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. I mean, we understand that Christ's death has paid for our sins. And we're a new creation. And we're a new creation in the sense that our old nature, our, the, the fact that we are slaves to sin, under the power of sin, that nature that is, uh, couldn't do anything but sin is gone. It's passed away. But, brothers and sisters, you and I still remember it, don't we? But we are, in fact, our new nature is that which is now set free from slavery to sin. We're now slaves to righteousness. And we can obey the Lord. We can walk in holiness. We can walk in godliness. But do we still remember our past? I don't know about you, but there are a lot of times, or a lot of times, yeah, a lot of times, too many times, where I'm kind of just thinking about my past, thinking about things I've done, thinking about, the times of things where I've sinned. And you kind of think back to it, and you kind of think with regret. It brings you regret, remorse, shame. Maybe this words that you said in anger to someone you love, you can't take that back. You can say, I'm sorry all you want. But you said those words. You did that act, and you can't change it. And though God in Christ forgives us of our sins, there is the feelings of, of, of remembering it and the, the, the consequence of that. Or maybe perhaps some of you are here and you're thinking of how others may have sinned against you. And you can't let that go. In your heart, you know, I need to have a forgiving spirit. I'm going to let that go. I, I know I'm not going to hold it. In fact, I'm not even going to go reprove them about that. But still, to this day, you, you still feel hurt about that. Maybe they left you out or they did something. They said something bad about you. They sl- slandered you. And you still have that bitterness or anger or it worse, if it's some, for some sins that you've been sinned against, it, it even causes you to feel shame. You can't forget it. And this is, what, this is part of what living in a fallen world is. We have experienced sin, we've committed against sin against others, and we've ex- experienced the sin of others, and we don't tend to forget it. But one day when God creates the new heavens and the earth, when he makes a whole, this new world, the curse of his sin and its impact on our lives will not be remembered at all. We will no longer remember. Either all memory of sin will be gone or it will be such that he will create us so that we will not, those things will not come to our remembrance anymore. We'll not be thinking about it. We'll be able to acknowledge the fact that that's all the past. It's been forgiven in Christ. There's no more condemnation and that there's no more effects of that sin in our lives because we're a new creation. That's what it'll be like in this new world. That's what will make it a great world because the effect of sin will be gone. 
Not only does God make the promise of a, of a new world, but we see secondly, the second thing about, that he promises about this future world is that there will be the promise of a new joy. Now, I don't know. I don't know about you, but most of us probably know what joy is. I mean, you say, well, new joy, I already have joy. And maybe you do. But the kind of joy you experience now is not the kind of joy you're going to experience in the world to come. In fact, every time I, in our outline where there's a promise of a new, you know, whatever the, I put in, it's really, you could say it's a new kind of thing. It's not that we don't experience it to some extent here. We have a world now, but there's going to be a new kind of world. And then we have joy in this world today as Christians even, but there's going to be a new kind of joy when we enter into the new world. And let's look at verse 18 and 19 then, this new kind of joy that God gives. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. There will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. Notice all the words for joy in these two verses, right? This is a, this is a very joyful passage. You see the word glad, rejoice. I create Jerusalem for rejoicing, gladness. Again, rejoice and glad. Six, uh, about six different references to joy in these verses. And so in the new world, there's going to be a whole new kind of joy. It will be a joy that the people of God will have, particularly in Jerusalem, in the new Jerusalem. Uh, that's, but not only will people have joy, but it says here that God himself will have this joy. We'll have a share of joy, if you will. He will rejoice in Jerusalem. He will join his people. And this is significant because when he looks at Jerusalem now, or just think about when Jesus walked in Jerusalem, what, did he, what was his response to Jerusalem? He wept for Jerusalem. He cried for Jerusalem. These people who killed the prophets, who did not heed his word, who would eventually put him to the cross. God, when he looks upon his chosen nation and the capital of Jerusalem, his people, the Israelites, there is sadness and sorrow. But one day, God will rejoice in them. They will be the kind of city, the kind of people, the kind of nation that God wants them to be. He will rejoice in them, and they will have joy too. But this future world, this new world, will be a world of joy. Now, I know you and I know joy. How many of you are joyful right now? I love it. You know, usually when you have joy, you go like this. But some of you are like this. <laughs> I love it. I love the immediate illustrations. But anyways, Sunday, in the new world, you're going to be like this. <laughs> you're going to be like this. You know, you're going to be phrasing. You use two hands. Anyways, uh, there is going to be, this, in the new world, we will rejoice. And not just... Uh, not just for a little while, for a, a momentary joy, but it's going to be a continual joy. That's not that we don't have joy. We know that joy is our experience in this world. It's the fruit of the Spirit, right? It's one of the joy. Second after love. The scripture, in fact, even instructs us to always have joy, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So we know about joy. We, we have that joy in Jesus Christ, and we experience it. If we're honest with ourselves, we don't always feel joy, do we? We don't always feel it. Trials happen. Sin happens. Uh, That's when those things take away your joy. In the fallen world, our joy is often short-lasting because of sin. But in the new world, it says here, as we look back to the text, we will rejoice forever. And again, it's because the former things will be removed. 
because sin will be, uh, the sinful past will be taken away. Without sin in the new heavens and new earth, there is going to be joy forevermore in this new world. And the text tells us that there will no longer be a voice of weeping, the sound of crying. You're not going to hear crying anymore. <laughs> I wonder if that applies to babies too, you know, like the babies aren't going to cry. Cause, uh, but anyways, but no more crying and weeping because of sorrow, because of sorrow. The first things have passed away. When the Lord dwells on the earth, sin will no longer have its impact that it does now in our world. And because of that, sin will now have its impact. The sorrows caused by sin will disappear along with it. Now, I would imagine in this room, there's most likely that some, that is probably some of you, several of you, that probably cried this week, sorrowed and wept. And it's probably because of sin, or whether it's just the curse of sin having its impact on your lives. But one day in the future, Jesus reigning on earth will, will, prom- will wipe away every tear, will wipe away every sorrow. It's not just the absence of sin's curse that gives eternal joy. As I've mentioned just now, it's the presence of someone else in, this, in that new world. For Revelation tells us, if you remember back in Revelation 21, uh, verse 3 and 4, what is significant about it is that in this new heaven and earth, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. This tabernacle, God of Jesus Christ, it's he who returns and who dwells among us and reigns in his, on his, king, in his uh, kingdom. And he will dwell among us, and we and will be among his people, and God will dwell among us. He'll we'll see, be able to see him face to face, even as you and I see each other face to face now, though we have to travel to Jerusalem for, to do that. He will reign in New Jerusalem, and he will wipe away tears. He will wipe away. There will no longer be any death. No longer any sorrow for that. No more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. Because his presence will be the cause of our joy. That's the second. There's a promise of a new joy in the new world. Thirdly, there's going to be a promise of a new life. A new kind of life. We have life now. We're all living, walking on earth. But there's going to be a new kind of life that we experience in the, the new world. Verse 20. No longer will, will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. So in verse 20, we find the promise of, 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 of a longer life. We see here this reference to uh, people living longer. Uh, first of all, it begins and deals, handles, talks about infants. It tells us that infant mortality will disappear. I believe there's probably no more greater sorrow in this world. Well, perhaps there's a few others, but than to experience the loss of uh, an infant, a child. No more will infants die early in the new world that God that God's going to establish. There'll be no more miscarriage, no more stillbirth, no more SIDS, no more life-threatening congenital disorders, no, long, no more tra- tragedies of youth dying way before their life has even started. 
not only will there be no infant mortality, it will be a thing of the past, but the, even the elderly will live out the full length of their days. That is, they're not going to die from accidents. They're not going to die from some, uh, some <laughs> random thing. They're going to live out the full days that God has for them. And even it'll be longer days than even what we know today. Psalm 90 talks about our days on earth. Mankind's there are like 70 to 80 years. We essentially live for that many, approximately, give or take, on average. But in the, new, in, this, in the future, in this new world, we find that those who die at the age of 100, anybody 100 here yet? Okay, not yet. That's, if, if you live to 100 years old and you die in the millennial kingdom, you'll be considered like a youth, a kid, a teenager. That's how surprising it'll be. It'll be like you barely lived. And what's more, if they die before 100, they'll be considered accursed. The reason maybe uh, that, that is that somehow for whatever reason, they've, been, they've died for a good reason, probably because they sinned. People uh, will live longer lives in this new world. They will live long lives, basically like the people did before the flood. You ever kind of read those stories of the, the, the people who lived before the flood in Genesis chapter 5, for instance? See all the numbers, see how they lived so many years, they had children, and then they died. But those numbers are like huge numbers, like hundreds of years old. And like, wow, that's crazy. But in the millennial kingdom or in this future day, new world, that's what's going to happen. They're going to live longer. Now, I've kind of already stated, but while this verse is straightforward, there is an apparent kind of theological problem in this text. And it's because of the mention of death here. Now remember, we, we're talking about the new heavens and new earth. The new heavens and new earth are the eternal state. And what is not supposed to be in the new heavens and new earth? What's not supposed to be in the eternal state? Death. So here is the mention of, well, people are dying. Even though maybe it's rare, it doesn't happen, but it still does happen. So either one says, well, the new heavens and new earth, the people do die there or in the eternal state. Or this new heaven, new earth is something else. It's not the new heaven, new earth of Revelation 21, 22. But whatever we say, there, we have to resolve this apparent conflict or contradiction between what it says here, that there is death in this section called the new heaven, new earth, as well as with Revelation 21, verse 4, where there, in the new heaven, new earth, there will no longer be any death. And since we believe Revelation to be true, we believe Isaiah to be true, we know that God does not lie, God does not contradict himself, we believe what Revelation teaches, that the eternal state, new heavens, new earth, will not have any death. So what do we find here? There are other, many scholars that try to come up with different answers. I will present to you what I believe is the right answer. And what we have here is an, most likely another example of how the prophets, when they speak of the future, of prophet, future prophecy, they would often conflate or compress two future events. The best example is the coming of Christ. When we speak of the Christ, remember Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2? There's, when, he speaks of the, when we think of the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, the prophets did never discern, discern that. In the same verse, or even in two verses, one right after the other, one could be speaking about the first coming of Christ, and the next verse could be speaking of the second coming of Christ. But from a distance, from where they stood in the Old Testament, the prophets would look, and it would seem as if it is one event. Well, that's, I believe that's what we're finding here. As Isaiah is looking to the future, he's seeing this vision that he's receiving from the Lord. He's looking to the, the new heavens and new earth, the 
the new world that God's going to have. And he sees, basically, two events that are close to each other, the millennial kingdom and the eternal state, or sometimes called the eternal kingdom of Christ. He sees them together. He sees them as one. And he's conflated them. He's put them together. What I... What I believe here is that verses 17 to 19 is, a refer- is a teaching us about the new heavens and the earth in the eternal state specifically, whereas verses 20 to 25 that follow describe the millennial kingdom. And there's other reasons for that, and I'll mention one of them later on. And this is describing the millennial kingdom when Messiah returns and rules on this earth. Because what we see here is that when the Messiah returns, there will be a transformation of the world. Even when he first comes and he destroys all the nations, there's going to begin a a radical transformation of making new the world. Even the Millennial Kingdom, we've looked at some other passages in Isaiah that describe the Millennial Kingdom, where the world at the Millennial Kingdom is going to be different. But where Christ reigns in his Millennial Kingdom, that later on to be followed by his eternal kingdom, it begins a change, a transformation that's going to be completed, completely done in the eternal kingdom. So then one could say that the new world that God is creating begins to take shape with the coming of the Lord to establish his millennium kingdom. And then it will lead into, after a thousand years, will lead into the eternal kingdom. And we'll see, what we see in the, new, in the eternal state, we'll see some of that in the millennial kingdom. So whereas sin and death will be gone from the new heavens and earth, in the millennial kingdom, sin and death will not be diminished will still be present. How do we know that? Because we see it in Revelation 21. We see that at the very beginning, Satan leads a rebellion. He's defeated, and he's cast into prison. After a thousand years, what happens? Satan is released, and he leads who astray? He leads other humans in rebellion against God. So they will still have a sin nature. They will still be susceptible to Satan's deceptions, and they will then rise up against God one final time and be destroyed at the end of the millennium. Sin and death will continue to exist in the millennial kingdom, but to a very diminished, to a very diminished uh, nature. And so hopefully all that exists. That's very difficult, uh, but it's theological. Uh, that's the best explanation for this passage, I believe. Uh, I don't think it's uh, tenable to say that there's going to be death in the eternal state. Uh, not why, why Revelation 21 uh, extends. So not only is there going to be an increase in the quantity of life, there's going to be a promise of a new a extended life, a longer life in the new world, but there will also be an increase in the quality of life, the quality of our lives. And we talk about quality of life too. Usually when people are dying, we say, well, what kind of quality of life can we help them to have? But we shouldn't even talk about quality of life, even to ourselves. Hopefully you're living a, a good quality of life. But no matter what quality of life you're living now, it's going to be infinitely greater in the new world. Verse 21 and 23 describe this increase in the quality of life. They will, the people then, they will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people." And my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them.
in Isaiah's day, particularly for Israel, they were a little tiny nation. They were just the nation of Judah, and they were surrounded by enemy nations. And then a lot of times these enemy nations would come and threaten them, and when they would come through threaten them, just as King Sennacherib did of Assyria, as you just saw the Sennacherib's prison recently, uh, you would know that King Sennacherib came and he defeated and conquered all 46 of the fortified cities of Judah. And you think when he conquered all the fortified cities of Judah, what did he do? So I was going to leave these buildings here. Oh, I'm going to leave all this food here for you. No, I have an army to feed. I'm going to take what I need and I'm going to take it with me. And that's what he did. And so, just as and this was the experience of Israel throughout, they would have the Moabites attack them, the Ammonites attack them, the Philistines attack them. All throughout the history, the surrounding nations would attack them, would take what they had they would done by the work of their hands. They would not be able to, they would take the fruit of their labor, the, the fruit of their labors, the work of their hands, and they would not be able to experience them. And a lot of times, they would lose their lives along the way too. But in the Millennium Kingdom. All are going to be able to enjoy the work of their hands. All will be able to enjoy the fruit of their labors because God will bless them. God will protect them. He will not let anyone take the things that they have produced by their own hands. And what's more, God, not only, more importantly, God will protect not only their labors, but God will protect their children. And the most precious product of, of our lives is, is the product of children. We invest some 18 years of our life into them and even beyond that. They are the work of our hands. They're the labor. And, we, and, what's, and sometimes what's sad is that, especially in war, children are lost at war. In a fallen world, we know that children are lost in other ways as well. But God promised the blessed that they will not bear children for calamity any longer. For all of you who have gone through the pains of losing a child or having a child experience calamity while young, that's probably one of the most grievous of pains, whether it's miscarriage or stillbirth or um, maybe an illness at a very young age or congenital um, defects. But for all who have ever gone through such pains, God promises a future where that will never happen again. God promises a whole new kind of world and a whole new kind of life And this promise of a new kind of life is already being fulfilled in, those, in Christ to those who trust in him. Remember Jesus' promise in John 10.10 10, that I, I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. It's not that Jesus just came to give us eternal life and a life that is for, forgiven of our sins, but he came to give us an abundant life, a life that is full, a life that we're created to live. And, and, as, and as those who are new creation in Christ, we're beginning to live that. We're no longer living enslaved to sin. We're, getting, we're now enslaved to righteousness. We get to experience what it's like to live our lives, to obey the Lord, and to bring glory to God as he created us. We who are created in the image of God, who are being recreated, reformed into the image of Christ, where that image has been corrupted, we get to taste what it's like to bring glory to God. You know, many of us are just, hopefully, you, if you've been walking your life aimless, I mean, for me, one of the greatest powerful things that having come to Christ as a new creation is that I have a purpose in my life. You have a purpose in your life as a new creation in Christ. You get to live not just for yourself, but you live for him who died for you. This is a higher calling. And as you get to live this out, you have this abundant life. 
that is ours, and that we're just getting a taste of that. And that will be more fully fulfilled when we experience the new life in the new world. Well, there's a fourth promise that we find in verse 24, and that's the promise of a new relationship. A new relationship, verse 24. It will also come to pass that, they, that before they call, I will answer, and while they are still speaking, I will hear. God basically declares here that he's going to answer his people's prayers before they call on him. That's great, right? Man, if he's going to answer my prayer before I pray, then uh, you know, man, I don't have to pray anymore. You know, I just, well, no, we still, we still pray. But basically, he knows what you, you're going to ask. Even though you're asking it, he will hear. He's going to, but then please, he's going to listen. And this is so significant for Israel because that was their complaint, wasn't it? Remember Isaiah 58, 3? Why have we fasted and you did not see? Basically, we're fasting. When you fast, you're praying. And you, Lord, you don't see us. They said them places that he wasn't answering their prayers. Isaiah 64, 12, will you keep silent, Lord? They've been praying to God. They've been calling out to God. They fasted for God. At least they thought they fasted for God. And yet God was not answering the prayers. They were still surrounded by their enemies, under the threat of their enemies. What would they do? And they, would, they did not realize, according to Isaiah 59, 2, that the reason why that God was not answering their prayers is because of their sin. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. But in the future, something is going to change. Something that is going to change where that will so that God will hear their prayers. God has remember, made a similar promise in Isaiah 58 verse 9. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry and he will say, here I am. If you remove the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness. What will change, of course, for Israel is the removal of their sin. Even today, Israel continues in sin as a, primarily as a nation as a whole. They are not worshiping Christ, the Messiah. They are not worshiping uh, the Lord as, as he's revealed himself in Jesus. But he will one day remove that sin from Israel. He's already provided for, remember, according to Isaiah 53, that God sent his servant to come and to bear their iniquities, to bear their sins on behalf of them so that he might justify, declare right the many. And that's what we, and we all know that Jesus did that when he came 2,000 years ago and died on the cross, right? But in Isaiah 64, we learn that one day, Isaiah, though not yet, will one day repent of their sins. They're going to confess their sins to the Lord and they're going to turn away from their sins and turn back to worshiping God as they ought, as they were called to. Through faith in Christ, their sin will be removed when he returns. And they're going to have a brand new relationship with their God, a new relationship where they will be able to pray out to him. In fact, not only will they pray out to him for themselves, but according to Isaiah 61, 6, they're going to be a priest to the nations. They're going to intercede to God on behalf of everyone else in the world in the millennial kingdom. And God will not be silent. He will answer their prayers. He will hear them because he'll have a new, close relationship with them. You know, the amazing thing is, brothers and sisters, as believers in Jesus Christ, we already possess this kind of relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. We already can pray to God and he hears our prayers. Matthew 6, 8, your father knows what you need before you ask him. And can you imagine that this is our privilege as those who pray in the millennial kingdom, our relationship with him will grow even closer as we dwell in, in that day along with Israel and along with Christ.
because he will be present on earth. Right now, we, we just pray to him, but one day we'll be able to address him directly. I'm not sure how that will look because it's a long line. Maybe we'll just be able to still pray and he'll just know because, well, he's sovereign God. He hears all, wherever we are. Well, there's going to be a new relationship. Lastly, finally, this new world that's going to happen is going to be characterized by a new peace, a new kind of peace, the promise of a new peace. This fifth and final promise is a bit unusual. We've seen it before already but uh, in Isaiah, but we're going to see it again here. And it's, even when I read it again, it, it still sounds odd to me. Uh, but let's read verse 25. The wolf and the lamb will graze together. The lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. We see that something's going to happen to the animal kingdom. That's for sure. The wolf, the lamb, lion, ox, uh, serpent, all these are different animals. But primarily the focus, these are three specific examples that are given. Three types of animals here, the wolf, the lion, and the serpent. Three animals that basically pose a threat to man. Uh, Obviously these days, if these animals were around you, you would be very careful. But there's going to be somehow a transformation in the, of the animal kingdom in this day, in the millennial kingdom, that will end the threat that animals pose to mankind. Somehow they're, they're, going, to get along, they're going to be no longer the carnivores that they are today. It's just, it's just looking at verse 25, it's odd. The wolf and the lamb will graze together. You know, in our world right now, if a wolf and lamb are lying together, you can be sure that the wolf is eating the lamb, right? That's probably what's happening. It's not going to like, you know, petting each other, licking each other. This is going to be, the wolf, but one day in the middle of the kingdom, the wolf and the are going to eat together. They're going to be grazing the grass together. The lion's going to be just like the ox, eating straw. It's not going to be eating animals or a man. Or, dust will be the serpent's food. So the snake, this is, a, this is the animal here, will, will be just eating the dust. It will not bite or devour uh, mice or other little creatures. Or even as we've seen with some larger snakes, so they do, they do eat people on occasion. In fact, these animals, according to God's word, will do no evil or harm in God's holy mountain. This is going to be a, a strange transformation in the animal kingdom where no longer, and, and it will basically reflect the peace and security that exists in that new world that God creates. We've seen this elsewhere already in Isaiah chapter 11, by the way. And I want to read it for you because just to remind us the significance of this. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6 through 9, we read this. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb. Oh, by the way, just context. This is a promise of the return of the root of Jesse. The coming of the root of Jesse, the branch of Je- the stem of Jesse, also known as the righteous branch. That's a reference to the Messiah. Okay? And so when the right Messiah comes, then this is all the things that are going to happen. I'll pick it up. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. There's an identical phrase. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So this is, you know, this is a description of the millennial kingdom. Isaiah 11, that's clear. It's when Christ returns. And so that's why, that's one of the further evidence why I believe verse 20 25 is also a reference of base, uh, is a reference to the millennial kingdom, and that's the conflation view of uh, this whole passage. 
But verse 9 of chapter 11 attributes the peace and security of Israel with the earth being full of the knowledge of the Lord. It reveals that the Lord will be on the world and the knowledge of him will be so spread out through the world that it will transform this world completely. The millennial kingdom of Christ will be one of peace that this world has never known. You and I have never known it. I would suggest to no one today that you have your little nursing child go play in the hole near the cobra. And I would definitely advise against your wean child to just put his hand on the viper's den. You don't do that. And, you know, those who handle snakes in Appalachia, they shouldn't do that, okay? That's crazy. This is a dangerous thing. But one day, that's going to actually be a safe thing because the Lord will be on this world. The peace will go beyond peace that we know today. You know, even in our world today, everybody wants peace, right? Ask any nation, they all want peace. America wants peace. We want, we want North Korea to denuclearize. We want China to, you know, give us a better deal on, on our trade. We want uh, everybody else to, to, just to maybe be our friend. Well, and I was going to say be our friends, but this, uh, anyways, we just hope for absence of conflict. That's the best thing that our world has. The best the hopeful peace in the world is just basically absence of conflict. And you can have periods of time where there's absence of war, absence of conflict. But because this world is full of sinful people, men and women, eventually we, whether individuals or we as nations, will want what others have. And when you want what others have and you can't have it, what do you do? You fight, you devour, you steal. And you do what you need to do. And that's the world we live in. But one day, this world, when Christ reigns on earth, they will know all the, we will know peace like far beyond the peace we know. It will not just be the absence of conflict, but it will be the presence of harmony, of unity, of presence of justice, presence of righteousness, presence of, of, of all having exactly what they need and more because of Christ. This world is always looking for peace, but there will be no peace on earth apart from Jesus Christ. Because there's no peace with, because of sin. Sin, sin's presence in our world is the result of all that is wrong. And we thank God because as we've seen in this, this passage today, we've seen that God is going to make a whole new world, a new heavens and new earth. And he's going to create it in a world that is absent from sin, that sin is absent. And because sin is absent, all the things that we experience, the joy, the, the life, this, uh, our relationship with God and even the peace that we know will be an infinitely better version of it. It'll be a, a whole new experience of the blessings in Christ. For Christ will reign here and he will bring an end to, end to sin. I want to end then uh, for how should we respond to this? How should we respond to this passage? This passage is primarily to Israel, Right? But it is speaking of the new heavens and new earth. It is speaking of the millennial kingdom, which, as believers in Christ, we will be a part of. So we will experience these things. But I want to turn our attention to 2 Peter chapter 3. Again, this passage I read earlier. Go back to 2 Peter chapter 3. For our kind of three things we can apply or things we can consider as our take home from this. First of all, 2 Peter 3 says, uh, Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. 
Some of us are wondering maybe, well, if the Lord hasn't come back after 2,000 years, is he going to come back soon? And because of that, sometimes people doubt or question or wonder. Maybe we have the wrong interpretation. Maybe he's already kind of back, but he's spiritually back in a way that we don't see. Some may think that. But God says the Lord is not slow about his promise. He will come back. But why is he delaying? Because he's patient towards you. Why is not, if you are thinking, wondering why the Lord's not going to, he's being patient towards you because he want, doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to come to repentance. And so this is where if you are here today and you're not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, you've come and you, you just want to listen, you've been seeking maybe, you want to be open to what Christians believe, and I praise God that you come here for this purpose. You want to hear the truth. Now, if we're kind of in this, if you keep coming, you'll continue to hear this truth that, that God is a holy God who is going to judge this world because of its sin. But God is also a loving and just, loving and, just and merciful God who sent his son to die on the cross in place of sinful man. So that he has made a way so that you, if you would repent and turn away from your sinful ways, your way of life, and you turn in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and who he is and what he accomplished on the cross for your sins, that you can have the hope of not only forgiveness of sins and eternal life, but you have a hope of being part of this new world, this new heaven and earth. You will dwell there instead of where Satan and those who rebelled with him are going to dwell for eternity. So this should encourage us, those of us who do not believe in Jesus yet, to repentance. You're non-Christian, the call is to repentance. That's your application. That's the call. Number two, secondly, for Christians, Peter writes in 2 Peter 3, verse 10 and 11, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Here's the, here's the rub for you and me, Christians, brothers and sisters. Since the day of the Lord is coming, since this world is going to be destroyed, how should you and I live? We should be asking ourselves, do, what kind of people ought we to conduct ourselves in holiness and godliness? We should be living in holiness and godliness because we know that God's going to destroy this world because of sin. Because it's a sin-cursed world. And so how can we continue in sin, knowingly, willfully, violate God's will and, and not repent of it? When he's going to come and judge sin. It's not our holiness and godliness that's going to save us. We're already saved in Christ. But we, out of a love for him, a reverence for him, we should want to live the kind of life that we're going to live in the new world. A life of holiness and godliness. And then thirdly, for all of us who dwell on earth, the, the last part is verse 12 and 13 of 2 Peter 3. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The last thing I want to emphasize is to ask us, to examine all of us here, what are we looking forward to? What are we looking forward to? You know, as a techie, I'm looking forward to September 12th. None of you guys are techies, huh? Good. If you that's praise God, you guys are not look well, so worldly like me. <laughs> Amen. But September 12th, well, if you don't know what that, you Google that. You'll find out. Some of us are looking at that. 
has it going to be an exciting day because you want to say, ooh, I wonder what's going to happen. I wonder what headquarters is going to release or what kind of new thing I'm going to throw all my money away at. Some of us, of course, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's not the most important thing to be looking forward to. I'm a family man. I got young children. I'm looking forward, to tell you the truth, I'm looking forward to seeing my kids grow up. Not, not too quick, but I hope to see them grow up and, and maybe someday become believers in Jesus Christ. I'm looking forward to seeing them then meet other, another believer in Jesus Christ and maybe get married and have children. I hope I'll get to see that. And there's nothing wrong with that. And that's one of the joys of living in this world. But I hope I don't just look for these kind of joys. And maybe whatever you're looking at, you're all looking for something in the future. All of us are looking for things in the future. But I'm pretty sure the longer you live in this world, the longer you live in the world, and I can see it, see it on your faces. What we ought to be looking forward to is we ought to be looking forward to the new heavens and new earth. We're looking forward to the place where we will be with Christ, our Savior. We're looking forward to be where we're going to be with those who have passed before us in Christ. We're looking forward to this beautiful new world where sin will no longer exist, where there will be no longer death, there will be no longer pains, there will be no longer agonies. It will be a joyous world. It's going to be a full of peaceful world. It's going to be a, a world where we have a, a vibrant relationship with God. Not like someone we're here, we're wrestling. Oh, I'm struggling with reading or praying. Oh, man, it's a struggle. It's going to be a wonderful world. And that is what we ought to be looking forward to, even as we live on this world. And when we look forward to that world, it makes everything else that we go through in this world, all the effects of sin that we, that we weep over, that we cry over, that we struggle with, that we, that we wish were no longer existence, it all falls into place when we look forward to the new heavens and new earth. For brothers and sisters, we are not made for this world. None of us in Christ are made for this world. We're made for another world. This is a very C.S. Lewis thought, by the way. We're made for another world, another world that he is going to make. And you and I, who are in Christ, will dwell in that world. That's our glory. That's the glory of God. That's the glory of Christ. That's where we're heading towards. Let's praise him. Let's rejoice while we live in this world for him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for these truths. Thank you, Father, for the promise of a new heaven and new earth that you will make when Christ returns. Lord, help us to live our lives in light of that. Help us to not only live and conduct ourselves in holiness and godliness until then. Help us to tell others about the coming judgment as well as the coming new creation. We pray that because you, as just as you are patient, that you would bring many to repentance. Even, Lord, some in this room who do not yet know Jesus, may you bring them to repentance today, to saving knowledge of Christ today. And draw them closer to you so that they might learn what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ who is also making disciples of Christ for your glory. Lord, we thank you that we can bring these things before you. Thank you that you have everything planned out, even when we cannot see beyond this hard little short life. We praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.